Yeah, it's it's actually been quite valuable for us. Um, so we have about 200 engineers here, and because of that, we have expertise amongst just about every skill set that would be needed. And whatever we don't have in-house, meaning within the whole lab's house, we can outsource and we can go find experts elsewhere. But it has been extremely helpful, whether it's supply chain, whether it's how do we get a plastic part that does this, how do we get a metal thing to do X, Y, Z. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Scott Hewish, CEO of Adaptive. Uh, the website's adaptive.xyz. And uh, if you missed part one about how they're changing incredibly <laughs> the same space of lowering things in and out of a ceiling to turn a dorm room into an office, into a kitchen, uh, please go back and listen to that as well as go watch the video off the website. Um, but I think one of the things I want to jump into here for part two is, Scott, you obviously are in the middle of scaling a business. You've been an investor. You've helped other startups. When you look at the world of innovation, and, and as you were talking about in part one, you either need to have support from investors or support from customers or both mm -hmm. to keep the lights on, right? Like yes. It's my, it's my deeply philosophical belief that businesses go out of business for one reason, which is they couldn't pay their employees anymore mm -hmm. because they didn't have enough investors or clients, right? So when you think about this idea of everybody's got all these great ideas on how they're going to get these customers and they're going to scale and that's going to improve the valuation so they can get more investors and these kind of things. Um, what have been a couple of things that you've seen either do really well or, or really poorly? I think a lot of what people try to do is they try to do, you know, they try to do something that's cosmetic and not maybe structural to the business. Um, or maybe another way to say that is they don't do something that's tangibly different or that adds tangible value. So one way to add, to add tangible value is bringing in customers and you have revenue. So that's very tangible. You can see it, you know, it's there. Um, but if you create partnerships, those need to be partnerships that are tangible, meaning there needs to be a very definitive benefit of that partnership. Um, I, I, I get frustrated when I, when I'm in meetings or when I see people that are trying to put on the lipstick of a company and there's nothing really tangible there, but it's simply the way they portray it or the way they talk about it, but it's still the same thing. And they just maybe let's use this verbiage instead of that verbiage. And so that, that's, that's frustrating on, you know, that's frustrating to me, but if you can find something that's tangible and make something tangibly different, that's where I found some success. As you're looking at, uh, kind of all the different things you've worked on and in, in investments you've made, uh, what are some of the things that stand out from a marketing perspective or even from a sales perspective that you've kind of seen are key differentiators between those who are succeeding and those who are struggling to find that traction? Is there anything that stands out in your mind? I would say that sometimes the difference between a very successful company and the one that goes out of business may be a 5% pivot. And um, I, I guess I guess I would say, you know, be willing to constantly iterate or constantly pivot, even if it's a very small pivot. Um, so, uh, so sometimes you may find, a, you know, two competing products or technologies that are almost identical, 
and they may be um, solving the same need and you realize one of them becomes wildly successful and goes IPO and the other one is, you know, having to tell the employees, sorry, but, you know, we're going to have to let you go. Um, I think that difference is often not because there's a superior product, but it's because one got in front of the marketplace. And maybe that's that small difference is that one got in front of the marketplace or it got in front of the right person and that opened up a pathway. It had the right partner and that partner um, opened up a big distribution channel. But I'm always amazed as I look um, at most companies that are out there, when you look at the history of what they've done to become successful, you'll find that the history of the company makes um, a big difference off of a couple of small decisions. And usually it comes back to one or two key partnerships or key relationships or key decisions that they made that others didn't make. And so I I guess I would say as as you're building a business, keep your hands on the wheel. you know, stay actively involved on trying to figure out which direction you're going. Um, but look for those moments to, you know, those decisive moments that make that big change. You know, that just makes me think about um, some questions I have. So, uh, you know, you talk about questioning why does it cost so much to put up drywall and two by fours, mm-hmm. right? Where uh, the level of sophistication I'm seeing in your videos, my guess is there there's some costs associated with that. Mm-hmm. So, um Help me understand how you guys made decisions about what you could price this at and what kind of, I mean, you're moving plumbing around and electrical. I mean, this is not just cosmetic changes, right? Mm-hmm. Can you talk about, um, as you look at the constraints of knowing people have got to be able to afford to build this thing, but it can do more than a regular room, so it should be worth more. And I'm just making some assumptions here. Can mm-hmm. you talk to us about um, strategy, pricing strategy as you look at your offering and, and how you're trying to expand? Yeah, I guess um, our pricing strategy, we're, we're, we're trying to take lessons from history. And the, the closest history that we're looking at is what happened with the automobile. And you look at Henry Ford, you look at the Model T, you look at the cost of automobiles that were previous to Henry Ford built out of wood, nails, and they were custom built. The same way we build housing today. And what did Henry Ford do? He came in and he automated things. He, you know, preformed parts so that every fender is the same. They're built the same. He made, you know, so all of these things become replicable and scalable, and hence the cost came down to a factor of four times from before, you know, pre-Henry Ford to post-Henry Ford. And so our big thesis, or at least one of our big thesis, is that as we manufacture a home the same way that we manufacture a car, the costs will also come down accordingly. Now, the second big thesis is as you have multiple uses of the same space, you can build a smaller footprint and still have the same functionality. And so with those two big theses, um, we are uh, looking at our cost of goods and we have fairly good estimates of what those will be initially, but we also know that as we scale, that the economies of scale come down and then, then obviously those come down dramatically. And so w- with our initial cost of goods sold, we're going to be competitive with traditional built housing. As our economies of scale ramp up, then we're going to be extremely competitive. Yeah, I just keep thinking about Bruce Willis's bedroom in the Fifth Element movie. <laughs> That's what I keep thinking about. Um, so whether it's the corporations you're talking to or, or universities who you guys are talking to about doing this with dorm rooms, mm-hmm. w- what's that experience like? What's that education curve like? You know, because you are talking about something different. As far as the educating of the university, as an example? Yeah, somebody who's potentially actually going to dole out the cash for this. Yeah. Uh, it's actually been... Uh, 
simpler than expected. And the reason for that, there's a tremendous need. Uh, So, for example, with universities, and we've met with several universities already, um, you know, they're all hitting budget constraints as far as the cost of dorm rooms, which in most universities is north north of $100,000 per dorm room. Now, that's a basic dorm room with toilet and showers down the hallway. And we're coming in and we're saying, hey, for, the, for a similar price point or even a competitive price point to what you're building at, we can provide all of this in a customized, you know, toilet, shower, workspace, bed space, et cetera, all in one space. And we can be cost competitive to what you're currently paying. And so um, it doesn't take much explanation. And then showing them the video that's on our website, adaptive.xyz, and they catch on to it fairly quickly. And then that opens up myriad questions that they have as far as how do you do it? You know, what's your timeline? How quickly can we get this? You know, how can you scale, et cetera? So catching the vision has been fairly easy because the market demand is so great. And can you talk about the power of video when it comes to creating converts? Yeah, well, and I'm, I'm probably not doing a great job of describing how this works on a over audio, but a video has... Um, I, I've, I've been in, I, I've had conversations where I've spent literally hours with people trying to describe what we're doing. And finally, I just kind of threw my hands up and I said, just go to the website. Here it is. And they've gone to adaptive.xyz. They've looked at the video, minute and a half video. The light bulb goes off and they say, okay, now I understand what you're doing. So video has been extremely powerful. And um, to convey what might be a complicated or a new concept to people, the video has been um, invaluable to describe what we're doing. That's that's awesome. Um, at, at creatively, we we notice a lot of times with startups that we work with, they're, they're struggling with this question of when's the right time to stop developing the product and and start marketing, so to speak. And, and I'm sure with with something as complex as what you guys are doing, that's gonna the development will continue. How have you approached that pro- that question though of of when is the right time to start uh, talking to people? Are you testing that with people or is it just been like, okay, we're ready. Um, how have you made that decision as an entrepreneur? Yeah, that's been very fluid for us. So we've tried to not operate just in our own isolation. And I guess, you know, we, we can become our worst enemies very quickly and we can start going yeah. down paths that we think are the right path. And so we've been very conscious and deliberate about trying to stay in communication with potential customers and with people um, that may have use for this. And um, that's actually shaped a lot of what we've done. And so I've I've actually found that, um, you know, these pitch meetings or sales meetings where I've gone out and met with people have been extremely instructive as they've taught us exactly what they want and what they need. And they've helped us come back to the lab and make those pivots that we need to do. Um, just as an example, Initially, we were not targeting the university campuses nor the corporate campuses. That was not a target of ours. And then we got in, into some meetings where we were in front of some universities and some, some large corporations, and we shared with them what we are doing. And because of those meetings, which were basically sales meetings, that is what led us to say, okay, this is our now target market. So it, um, it, it sounds like you guys had to resist that natural urge that entrepreneurs have of kind of Let's keep it as secret as possible until 
were ready to wow the world and, and and just get out there and tell people about it so that you could see what it was actually yeah, causing exactly. them to think about. Yeah, and, we, and we've had several people that have told us, you know, hey, why don't you keep this secret until you're ready to go live? And, um, and as we have a team of primarily engineers, that's the natural tendency is to keep it very secretive and just to go down that path. Um, but we've, we've made the efforts to be public about what we're doing. We've put confidence in our, in the value of our, of our intellectual property and been willing to expose people to what we're doing and how we're doing it. And from our experience, that's been very helpful to, um, redirect what areas we focus on and our target market. You know, I know we're kind of winding down here for part two of the interview, um, I'd love to hear any advantages you think you have being part of the Hall Labs here, and people are manufacturing new cars down the here. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. Those guys have got the $10,000 toilet, tells you if you're healthy or not, mm-hmm. and the, all the building supplies and stuff. What do you feel like the advantages are for your team to, to be bumping into other people's innovation, like literally in these, <laughs> in these hallways we just walked down? Yeah, it's, it's actually been quite valuable for us. Um, so we have about 200 engineers here. And because of that, we have expertise amongst just about every skill set that would be needed. And whatever we don't have in-house, meaning within the Hall Labs house, we can outsource and we can go find experts elsewhere. But it has been extremely helpful, whether it's supply chain, whether it's how do we get a plastic part that does this, how do we get a metal thing to do X, Y, Z. Odds are we can find it and we can just simply walk down the lab and find somebody who's been through that challenge, found a way to go work through that challenge. And so um, the synergies have been very tangible, um, something that has been uh, much more than just lip service, but something that is actually um, there available and um, used on a very regular basis. And so, for example, with the automobile company, um, we constantly interact with the automobile company of saying, okay, how do we make sure that we're building a house like a car? and not building a house like a traditional house is built. And so it's nice to be in constant communication with people that are building cars. Um, is Vanderhall is the only auto manufacturer in the state, right? Correct. Um, and uh, it probably doesn't hurt that there's, like, fun, you mm-hmm. know? But it's, it, it's it, like, yeah. futuristic, it's desirable. It's, it's a sporty magnetic. roadster. Yeah, it, it's a sporty roadster. It, it's it, it's very fun to drive. Um and so that was started here within Hall Labs and, and um, graduated and became, you know, independent. Um, but they're still here within the campus. Well, and I can just see, like, even just the visuals, the way you guys have chosen to mock up, you know, what a building could look like and stuff. Um, it, it looks like you guys have taken that, hey, this is the future. Hey, how do we make this as magnetic as possible? Yes. Um, there needs to be sizzle. And... Um, I think there's a lot of groups out there that are trying to sell the stake or that are trying to sell the function of here's, you know, a way to live in a place that's very affordable. But at the end of the day, people don't want just affordable housing. They want something that's that has that sizzle to it. And um, so we are constantly trying to find how to make this as attractive as possible, not just from a pocketbook, but attractive in terms of desirability of that people millennials as well as older people would want to live there and is that primarily like design or wh- what, what are your main tools when it comes to making it attractive and magnetic and those kind of things yeah it's really incorporating a lot of technology and so um and so it's uh, essentially we're 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 uh 
we're looking at what are the most desirable places to live in, you know, today, as far as design, architecture, things like that. And then what are the most advanced technologies that are currently in homes? And we're incorporating all of that. So we're kind of taking the best of approach. And then we're saying, okay, now how do we make it adaptive? How do we make it specific to this multi-use, multi-tenant building? And that has a number of ripple effects as far as how do you design the plumbing, how do you design the HVAC, you know, et cetera, when you're in this kind of a unit. Um, But uh, we are focused on this being a very desirable place for people to live or at least stay if it's a transition. I love it. Well, um, I think one of my favorite things to end with is uh, something we've been asking a lot of guests lately. If you could go back and give a younger version of yourself some advice, what do you think, what do you think you'd tell yourself? Fail quickly. So if you, if you find that you're reaching a failure point, um, don't let it drag on. Um, fail quickly, move on to the next thing, whether that's on a specific project or even a business that you've built and you realize that, you've, um, you know, that it's not going the way that it needs to be going. Um, if you can fail quickly, you can iterate quickly, you can move past that quickly and um, continue, continue to make progress. You know, it, it's funny how many people give that advice. Uh, but for me, it's like, well, then I have to admit I lost and my image and ego get tied up in that. And, um, you know, this whole, like, I pride myself on never saying, never say die. I never Mm -hmm. quit. Right. And then I think about wisdom from people like Warren Buffett, who I look up to. And he says, when you find yourself in a boat with too many holes, uh, your time is better spent, uh, finding a different boat instead of bailing out the one you're in. Mm -hmm. Right. But there's, there's all these kind of natural human image things wrapped up in not doing that. Right. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, if you can remove your personal ego from what you're doing, that becomes very empowering and quite liberating. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Easily said, and something's probably a lifelong work for all of us, huh? Yeah. Hey, thanks for making time for this. This was great. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.